Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to herod they departed to their own country by another way thank you mulligans you can be seated matthew chapter 2 take your bibles and turn to matthew chapter 2 If you come here on a typical school day, you'll probably see, you'll definitely see Kendra hanging around. Uh, I don't know if you'll see David. Sometimes he's here, sometimes he's not, but the Mulligans have been really helping out around here. Kendra works in the uh, business office with Jelaine, and, and uh, uh, I think David is the Swiss Army knife of the school right now, just fills in wherever he's needed. Um, so that's, they're wonderful to have in our, in our congregation, they and their family. Uh, You've probably heard this before, but way back in the day, uh, there was a consensus belief that uh, the whole universe, all the stars, the sun, everything, everything revolved around the earth. Um, and it wasn't until some scientists who had made some observations using telescopes and, and uh, looking up at the stars and making observations, writing those observations down, they... they uh, they, they just kind of gently raised their hands and said, and said, excuse me, I don't think that's true. And uh, they got clobbered for it. They got clobbered because the consensus thinking was, no, no, everything revolves around the earth. The earth is the center of God's creation. Everything revolves around the earth. And I think that some of those people, Galileo and others, were excommunicated from the church and were social outcasts because... They simply were people who looked at information, looked at data, uh, made observations, recorded those down, and came to a different conclusion. This morning, just by way of introduction, I want to I want to introduce to you, just you know, talk to you a little bit about science, and 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 we have to understand what science is and what science isn't, and we also have to understand what its limits are. 
Science is not consensus thinking. Later, uh, Galileo was uh, proven to be true. It was, his thoughts, his observations were proven to be true that the earth does not, the, the universe does not indeed revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun, and the sun is just one of the many stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are many galaxies, and uh, our galaxy isn't the center of those galaxies, let alone our star, our sun being the center of our galaxy. So he was eventually proven science is not consensus opinion. It's not. Science should always be open and, in, and even inviting to criticism and to invite questions. As long as those questions are in good faith, everything should be good, and that's the way science should work. In fact, uh, the way I was trained, uh, the way I was trained in my thinking was that if I take data and that data tells me exactly what I wanted to hear, I should question that data doubly, right? Because I have bias, and I recognize that I have, I have bias. And so that's kind of what science is and what it isn't, but we also have to recognize the limits of it. Elon Musk, his companies have made great strides in, in uh, developing things, solar panels, electric cars, uh, rockets that go into space, and even he's trying to get off the ground a, an, an exploration or an expedition, I guess I would say, to Mars. But one thing that science can't answer for Elon Musk is that would an expedition to Mars be a good thing? Or would that be a bad thing? I don't really know the answer to that question. I just, science can't answer if something is good, if it's evil. Uh, what kind of government would be established on Mars? And would that be a good government or a bad government? You get the idea. So science is something that is always changing. It's, it's always uh, developing our understanding of the universe, the universe where God has placed us. And it has limitations. It can, answer, it can answer questions of fact. It can answer, it can make observations about the universe that we, can, that we live in, but it cannot assign values. Something's good or bad. With that in mind, let's, let's uh, get to our text this morning. And I don't know if you've connected all the dots yet or you're, you're making those connections in your mind, but the first Sunday in this series, we talked about the shepherds and how God revealed himself to the humble and the lowly of this world. And last Sunday, we talked about Anna and Simeon. And despite the fact that, that Jesus was being presented in the heart, in the very seat of the Jewish faith, Jerusalem, at the temple, the only people that seemed to recognize him were people who were not of the religious elite class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. But the two people that recognized Jesus when he came into the temple complex were two relative nobodies who simply were people who studied God's word and listened to his prophets. And so of all of the people in the temple complex that day, the only two people that were able to have their eyes open to the reality that the Christ had come were these two humble students of God's word. Well, today we're gonna talk about a group of people who are on a quest. Uh, and I believe that they're on a quest to seek truth. So we're gonna talk about them this morning. Question is, is uh, who were the wise men and what does it mean that they arrived after Jesus' birth? Who were the wise men? What does it mean that they arrived to visit Jesus after his birth? 
Let's just dig right in. The first point I want to make today is I think that the text makes it clear to us that these were men who were seeking truth. They were seeking truth. And we'll get to that. We'll get to how I, why I believe that as we go here. Uh, it says in verses one and two, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, note, note Bethlehem of Judea, we'll come back to that. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now I'm about to burst a lot of nostalgic people's bubbles this morning. And you know what's coming. I know what our traditions tell us about the wise men, that there were three kings, right? Some, some traditions tell us what countries these, these guys were from. Uh, some traditions even tell us their names, like that we have them written down. But the truth is, if we're gonna get to the objective truth here, the truth is, is that we know next to nothing about these guys apart from tradition. In other words, the Bible doesn't tell us hardly anything at all. We don't know, uh, for example, specifically where they came from. Did they come in a group? Was this uh, wise men from various countries who started, were following after the star and at a certain point kind of met up? And like, what are you doing? I'm following that star right there. What are you doing? I'm Me too, I'm following the star. Well, hey, let's go together. I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. We know next to nothing. We don't know how many of them there were. Tradition has told us that there have been, there are three, but that's probably because of the number of gifts. Has probably more to do with that, associating it with that than it does. So this could have been a larger group. This could be 10. I, we don't know. We don't even know that they are kings, right? Even though the tradition tells us that they were, the Greek word here is magi and I've found several different definitions in different Greek lexicons about what that Greek word magi is, but a reliable one says that it carries the meaning of wise men and priests who were experts in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and other occult arts. My understanding of this is that these were men who were using their five senses you know what I'm talking about, to, to figure out how the world works. They did this by observing things, looking up at the sky, at the stars, and, and all these kinds of things to try to figure out how the world works. But we have very little information as to why they came, except that it, the text tells us that they took note of a star that rose, and somehow in their system of belief, and their system of, of how they understood the world, Somehow this particular star rising indicated to them that someone was going to be born who was not someday going to be the king of the Jews. Read the text. It says that they were looking for the, the child that was born king of the Jews, like from birth, king of the Jews. That's what apparently they were looking for. So what does it mean that God has given us so little information so little detail here about these guys. So little detail, in fact, that we've, we as human beings, we have decided to insert details where they, don't, where they weren't there before, that they were three of them, that they were kings, and that their names were Gaspar, Melchor, and Balthazar. What is the significance of these men? Well, let's just see what the text tells us, right? The text, magi were likely men of power and influence and wealth and learning. And I'm gonna explain that from the text, how I got there. 
They were likely men of power and influence and wealth and learning. Here's the evidence of the power and the influence, that they gained an audience with Herod the king, Herod the Great, right? He was the king at the time. That they even gained an audience with them, that, that they came riding into town and they had some credentials or maybe in their presentation they just looked like that these guys were important men. And so the reality that they had gained some sort of audience with Herod the Great and that he was interested in their opinion gives us some clues that these guys were men of power and influence. The evidence of their wealth is also clear in the text. It tells us that they brought very expensive gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So costly were these uh, gifts that it is thought by some scholars that when, when Mary and Joseph escaped from Bethlehem with Jesus to go to Egypt for a time, that, that those gifts were sufficient to kind of bankroll their expedition into Egypt. It paid for that trip and gave them the support they needed while they were gone. So that's the evidence of their wealth. What about the evidence of learning? Well, for this, you gotta kinda, you gotta kind of uh, ask yourself the question, what would drive a guy, a very rich, powerful, influential guy, what would drive a guy to leave his wife, his family, his home, his responsibilities, and saddle up some camels or whatever, beasts of bird they have, and go perhaps hundreds of miles, seeking or following this star who, under their, uh, with their understanding, they were going to meet the king of the Jews. What would possess them to do that? Well, here's my, uh, here's my two cents for you. I've, I've hung around with some scientific, scientific thinkers in my, my time, especially as an undergraduate and uh, for the years after that. And if you've ever hung around with a person who's got a scientific brain, they have a, they're not only naturally curious people, but sometimes obsessively so. People say that engineers are people who solve problems you didn't know you had in ways that you cannot understand. And let me just, let me just tell you that when you get in your car today to go home, I want you to realize that there's some nerd somewhere who is, who is concerned about the amount of resistance you feel when you turn the wheel to go down the street and the gear ratio between how many degrees that you turn that wheel and how many degrees the wheels turn on your car to steer it. There's somebody out there who is obsessively possessed with the idea that they're gonna make that better. They're called engineers, right? I don't know if you've ever hung around with uh, you know guys like Mark Mashburn. You know he's he's kind of wired that way. He's he's curious about things, and so once they once you get a a, a question in your head, what's the star doing? The, the where's the star going? Where can I find the King of the Jews? Once you get a question in your head, if you've got a scientific brain, you kind of can't let it go. Uh, scientific people are weird. Uh, I once had a um, yeah, their quest for learning drew them to Jesus. I, I once, uh, when I went to Purdue University, I was studying mechanical engineering. I had a roommate, actually I had several, but I had one roommate in particular who was an electrical engineer. Now, this is not a picture of him, but this is what I picture all electrical engineers to look like right here. <laughs> and and uh, nice guy, we, we got along wonderfully, and, uh, but, but he was obsessed with the idea in his senior year of building a robotic arm. You know, he's gonna build this robotic arm, program it and everything. Not for a school project, for fun. 
okay? This was gonna be what he did in his spare time. Not meeting girls, not going to play basketball at the rec facility or going to a Purdue basketball game, none of that stuff. He was instead, you would find him on the weekends in his room writing code, building components for the robot, programming it and perfecting it. He even got me involved because he would uh, consult with me for, on the mechanical things because he was an electrical guy, right? I hung around with people that would spend their weekends, uh, like the guys at the Purdue Thermal Sciences and Propulsions Lab, when they weren't building rockets or studying propulsion systems, they were having uh, potato gun contests, <laughs> right? This was their fun, their fun time. And my understanding was is that they had to find increasingly large fields to to compete in because the, the potatoes would go further and further as their design progressed. So it totally makes sense to me that if these guys, these, these magi are scientific thinkers at all, they're curious, they're naturally curious about the world that they live in, that when they saw that star rise and they connected that star to the king of the Jews, they're like, <laughs> honey, I gotta take a trip. We're gonna go find, figure out what's going on here. And so they would leave their wives, their countries, their families to go figure out the origin of this star. Now, the next thing we see in the text is this, is that sometimes when we go on a search for truth, it can be troubling to those who are operating according to human wisdom. It says in the text, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He heard that these wise men were in town and that they were seeking the, the child that had been born king of the Jews. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know, if the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. There it is again, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for... From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's an Old Testament quote. We'll get to that. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them that what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Folks, when we go on a legitimate search for the truth, especially in the age that we live now, we might find out things that we don't want to hear. Herod certainly was in that position. Herod had to confront the reality that he was a usurper and a rightful king had come. I don't know if you know the history behind Herod the Great, but historically, he was a client king of the Roman Empire. What's that mean? That means that he somehow had garnered political favor with them. He had, he had made themselves, he had, he had endeared himself to the right people, shall I say it that way? He had, he had pressed enough flesh and, and had uh, and made enough buddies in the empire that Augustus took note of him and installed him as the king over uh, as the ruler over Israel, even though he was not Jewish. He was actually born in the land of Edom. Therefore, there is no doubt that he was not of the line of David and therefore not a legitimate ruler in Israel, at least from the Jewish people's perspective. 
Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to be a leader when all the people that you're leading don't like you, right? If you're gonna lead like that, you've gotta lead with absolute ruthlessness and fear. And history tells us that that was his leadership style. He was there, put there by the Roman Empire to maintain law and order, keep the peace, and to collect the taxes. Keep the peace, keep the people subdued, collect the taxes for the empire. And he was no different than many other leaders were in the Roman Empire. He made a name for himself through his tremendous building and beautification projects. He, he even did a restoration job to the Jewish temple. He needed to make a name for himself, and, and he did. Now, the men that led back in these days were both ruthless and smart. And Herod probably had a keen awareness of how the Jewish people thought and their history, their background, their teachings. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Israel had a history. They had come out of Egypt through God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm. You know, the, the, the parting of the Red Sea was probably a legend back then that everybody knew. The, uh, the, the Passover was something that they were, he was reminded of year over year because they celebrated the Passover year over year, right? He probably knew of Israel's history and how she had defeated her enemies and they had, had attributed the defeat of their enemies to God Almighty, so those things were probably back in the back of his mind, likely haunting him just a little bit. In those days, any threat to his power or authority had to be confronted with, confronted and dealt with swiftly. As one part of the Roman culture, Roman rulers would kill their own family members if they perceived, if they perceived that they were a threat to their power. So, for example, Emperor Nero, it is, it is recorded, killed his own mother. And it is thought that he even killed his own wife, although that is not verified. Why? Because he perceived them as a threat. So Herod hears about this baby that's born king of the Jews, and he calls, the, he calls a meeting. He has meetings with the wise men. He has meetings with the scribes and the chief priests. And the scribes and the chief priests come and they assemble. The priests represent the Jewish worshipers because they did their duty at the temple and the scribes represent the Jewish law. They were more scholarly types. And he asked them, where is the Christ predicted to be born? And they went apparently right off the top of their head and they quoted Micah 5.2. It would have been called Micah 5.2, but they, they quoted the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They quoted an Old Testament prophet. Micah was a prophet in Israel. Israel had been disobedient to God, and so God had warned them uh, through the prophet that if they continued in their disobedience, that he was going to raise up another another people group, another country, and he was going to defeat his own people. He was going to execute his judgment on his own people through a foreign nation. However, God also told them in the prophet Micah that he would restore them again in the future. And in the, it's in this future anticipation section of Micah's prophecy that he tells them 
where his Messiah would originate. Now, there were two towns in Israel called Bethlehem, one in the south near Jerusalem and one in the north in what we know as the area of Galilee. And so, have you noticed in this text, and even in Micah's prophecy, it says Bethlehem in the land of Judah. God knew that there was two, and he specified the one. Herod, is, Herod in, in uh, gaining this knowledge, Herod decides to employ political tactics. I gotta get rid of this kid. But I don't know what to, I don't know where he's at, and these wise men seem to hold the key. So, so he used them as his unwitting pawns. That was his intent anyway. What he doesn't know is that God is in control, amen? This dream thing, I don't, you know, I don't understand, but in verse 12 it says that they were warned in a dream to return by a different way, and so they didn't go back through Jerusalem. God was at work, and he spoke to them in a way that they would understand. They were, they were these wise men. They interpreted these dreams. I, and then my mind goes to, did all three of them have, or have three? I see, I fell into the cultural trap. Did all of the wise men that night have the same dream and then talk about it you know, over breakfast or whatever? I don't know. But somehow they received a warning not to go back. God was in control. But anyway, Herod decided to employ these guys as his unwitting, as his unwitting uh, pawns. And he said, hey, you go, you go the rest of the way to Bethlehem, which is about five miles away from Jerusalem. You could walk that easily in a, in a section of a day, maybe a couple hours, uh, depending on the terrain, right? And once the wise men returned, you know, he said, come back to me and then tell me where the kid is and then I'll go and worship him. Herod, at that point, could just simply send a small detachment of troops over to Bethlehem and take care of any threats against his rulership. So the, the table is set. Herod's plan is in place. And so off the wise men go to Bethlehem. You know, analogous to this is, is our experience as people. The good news of Jesus Christ can often be a difficult thing to accept. And there's a whole, for you, there may be a whole host of reasons why. Perhaps you're more of a scientific thinker, and so you're thinking to yourself, if I can't see this, taste it, touch it, smell it, if I can't see God, I'm not going to believe in him. Uh, perhaps... Uh, you're, having, you're coming to, to grips or, or you're having to come to wrestle with the idea that the Bible says that we're all sinners, right? That's, a, that's an offensive thing to say to someone. Hey, you're messed up. You got problems. But again, I don't think it takes much of our sensory skill set to look around the world and see that the world is a messed up place and that the, the Disney version, the Disney movie version of, of humanity where we're all just basically good people and we just need to look into our hearts for the truth, that that is a crock of baloney. Amen? I don't know what it is, but uh, the truth can sometimes be difficult to accept. And the truth is, is that you are a sinner. The Bible makes that clear. The wages of sin is death. In other words, God is holy. He cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. And so if we were to die in our sin, we would spend eternity separated from him. And some people 
struggle with that. They struggle with the idea of hell. They struggle with the idea that a sinner could spend eternity, that God, a good God, would, would put a sinner in eternity, put a sinner in hell for all of eternity. But I tell you what, wrap your mind around this, that a holy God would send his son to come to this earth and to die to pay the penalty of filthy sinners like us. It warps your brain either way, folks. The good news, the gospel, is the reality that Jesus has come. We do celebrate his arrival at this time of year and that he has lived a perfect life. And he's the only one that qualified to be our all-perfect sacrifice, the one whose death could pay the penalty for our sin. And so he has. And this is good news. In our lives, in, in our life, folks, we, we, and this is a dangerous thing, we tend to compare ourselves with other people. We, we look around and we see the world around us and we say, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person relative to that person or relative to the culture that we're currently live, living in. This is a dangerous thing to measure yourself by your family, your friends, your colleagues. There's only one way, one standard that we should use to compare ourselves, at least when it comes to our relationship with God, and that is perfection. And with, if our lives have any sin in them whatsoever, we are destined for hell. And so the good news is that Jesus has come and that he has paid the penalty for every single one of your sins, everyone that you have committed or will commit. He's paid the penalty for that. And what he what the way to have that applied to our life is clear from Scripture is that we must trust Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin and begin to follow him as one of his disciples. And that's it. It's a free gift of God. It's not an easy gift to receive. It's a transforming gift because God has stated in his word that his purpose is to transform us into the image of his son. And that means saying no to ourselves and saying yes to God. But in this, whole, in this whole category of comparisons, let me read to you a quote from an old Scottish pastor who's long gone home to be with the Lord, James Stalker. He said, he said this, ours is an age of majorities. We grow up under the impression which is born in on us from every side that if it that if the opinion of the majority has declared itself, that which is, or that which it has declared must prevail, and that which it has declared against must disappear. It may be good enough doctrine in some things, but there are important limits to its application. There are things which do not submit themselves to the judgment of the many or the few. Rather, these things judge all critics. Do the judges approve of them? Then it is well for the judges, but if they persist against, all the same. One man with the truth and the promise of God at his back is stronger than an opposing world. Not unfrequently has this been the predicament in which the cause of Christ has found itself. It has come through crisis when persecution has tried to exterminate it with fire and sword, it has passed through periods of skepticism when learning and cleverness have fancied that they had blown it away as an exploded superstition. 
Men have had to stand up for it single-handed against principalities and powers, but with it, the truth of God, at their back, they have been stronger than all that were against them, as one in such circumstance sang, God's word for all their craft and force, one moment shall not linger, but in spot, but spite of hell shall have its course, tis writing by his finger. And though they take our life, goods, honor, children, wife, yet their profit is small, these things shall perish all. The city of God remaineth. We have to confront difficult realities in our search for truth. And the realities are that there's only two options on the, sh on the shelf, serving God or serving self. You have to decide who is God in your life, who is the Lord of your life. It is, is it the God of the Bible or is it you? Third thing that we see in this task or in this text, those who sincerely seek truth will often find God. Again, we don't know what happens after the wise men arrive. Uh, we don't know what, they, what message they carry back to their countries, but all we know is what we see in the text. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them went, uh, uh, until, went, and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. These men were on a sincere quest to find the truth. Reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, where we read this, you will seek me and find me with you when you seek me with all your heart. Folks, especially young people, there's, a, there's got to come a period in your life where you have to ask yourselves the hard questions. Who is God? Who is he? Who is this God? According to God's word, he's, uh, according to himself, he's an all-knowing, he is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present creator of everything. And after you finish wrestling with that question, you may have to move on to what is God doing in this world? What is he doing? What is this all about? Why is it that we look around and we see suffering all around us? We see pain. We see people dying unjustly. We see the truth being mocked and the things that are substituted for that truth being perverse. Well, God's word tells us just a few pages over, Matthew chapter five. You might turn there. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus, in one of his longest recorded sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, gives us a glimpse of what he's doing in this world at the very opening of his sermon. He didn't beat around the bush. Matthew 5, three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is God doing on this earth? He's building a kingdom of the followers of his son, Jesus Christ. He's building us up into a temple of God that have characteristics that God says are good, they're blessed. He's building us up into people who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and who are reviled and persecuted and spoken evil against by the world falsely. That's what he's doing. He's building a kingdom from all nations, tribes, and tongues, not just the United States, but from around the world. We have brothers and sisters that we know of, right? In Chad, we have brothers and sisters in Colombia. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in Peru and around the world. He's building a kingdom of followers of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, yes, it's true that each one of us as his followers should, should work for the good of the people that are surrounding us in this country, for sure. But God is at work building a kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, but a kingdom of Jesus' followers. Yes, he will return someday and set up his kingdom on the earth. But for now, this is the kingdom that he's building. Won't you get on board with that? And so that's why sometimes we look around this world and we see pain and agony. We see injustice because God is not building an earthly kingdom at this point. He's building a kingdom of followers of his son, Jesus, who work against injustice, right? Who work for uh, truth, who live to speak the truth and not live by lies. And so when the wise men met when the wise men, uh, sorry, this kingdom that he's building is based on the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, some of that good news is found in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved from your sin, right? Through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the proper response when these wise men came across, they were seeking the truth, right? And when they came across Jesus, their response was worship and sacrifice. Worship, an attitude and an expression of adoration and reverence. This baby, this child is important. I am to be in awe of this child. I am to love this child. And then they made sacrifices. They, they opened up their treasures and they gave gifts. And these gifts, some have said, are somewhat prophetic in their orientation. Gold pointing to Jesus' kingship. Frankincense pointing to Jesus' priesthood. These were 
the types of things that would be burned as part of the sacred worship in the temple. And then myrrh, an item used to anoint the body of a dead person. Myrrh, speaking or looking forward in anticipation to one of the most wonderful and horrific things that ever happened for us as believers, the torturous death of Jesus Christ on the cross. They would take his body down and anoint it with aloe and myrrh. Again, sadly, history does not tell us what happened with these wise men when they traveled back. Was there revival in their country? Were, were, were these truths shared? Did the wise men fully grasp who this child was? We don't know that. But we know that our proper response when we encounter Jesus is worship and sacrifice, to turn away from our sin and turn towards God and to take of the talents that he's given us, our, our time, our treasure, uh, the particular abilities that he's given us and to use those for his purposes. Why did the wise men come? Here's the answer. The wise men represent humankind's pursuit of knowledge and in their pursuit, they found the very word of God in the flesh. The very word of God in the flesh. So, here's some possible things to think about in terms of application. Number one, be seekers of the truth. Be seekers of the truth. We are living in a time when it is not politically correct at all to believe what we believe. And I'm not telling you to go out in the culture and be needlessly bombastic, but when somebody is trying to get you to believe or live by a lie, you've got to speak against it and, and speak what is true according to God's word. God has revealed himself through his word. He has given us to help us, the Holy Spirit, to God taking up residence in our lives. And that, that God's spirit is at work in the lives of his people, the church, as we live out our lives according to his word. Sadly, I, don't, I didn't get all the details, but I did see a clip this past week of a, of a little girl. I think she was probably the age of some of the older children that were on the platform earlier. And this little girl's father happened to be a police officer who had been shot to death by a very bad man. And this little girl was one of the most courageous little girls that I've ever uh, I've ever seen. Not only did she have the fortitude to stand up and speak at her daddy's funeral service. But the words that she said were so amazing. She expressed that not only had she forgiven the man that had caused the death of her father, but that she had earnestly hoped for and was actively praying for the opportunity to meet this man someday so that she could introduce him to the love of Jesus Christ. That is, that is thinking that is not from this world. That is thinking that is driven by God at work in her life. We have to seek the truth from God. Secondly, we have to understand, just as we navigate this world, that God's way of doing things will be troubling to those operating according to the flesh. 
And you, you younger folks that are gonna go off to college someday, you have to understand this, that you're gonna face particular challenges when you go off to school or when you go out to work in the, in the world, you're gonna face particular challenges. And so I just wanna arm you with just a little tool that you can use. If somebody is telling you that you must believe something because that's just the way it is and you have to believe that, then, ask, then, then, then respond to that person by saying something like this. You mean, you mean it's something that I cannot question? I'm not allowed to ask questions? You can ask me anything about my faith, my understanding of God, the Bible, why I believe what I believe, but I'm not allowed to ask you questions. I, I'm, I'm thinking that a question like that would pierce through a little bit of their heart to help them to see that they've just adopted a position based on blind faith and have decided to, to walk in that because it's the spirit of the age, it's the thinking of the time. But ask good questions and never be afraid to do so. Be bold in your desire to seek the truth. And recognize that when you do that, others will be trouble, troubled by the fact that you're asking those types of questions. But again, keep asking them. And then finally, uh, this life, as you probably know, and circling back to the beginning, this life is impossible to understand based on what we can observe alone. And what I really mean by that is it is impossible for us to use the scientific method to define what good and evil are. Unless you think, as some in our culture do think, that we can define good and evil just by majority rule, just by uh, taking a poll and figuring out what most people think on the topic. You realize we tried that in the 20th century and millions of people are dead as a result. It's called, it was called communism. And so we need... We need to understand what is good and what is evil from someone greater than ourselves, and that someone is God. And he is good. He is love. And he has spoken. So, Father, help us to listen to, the, to your voice as we go about our lives seeking what is true, that we would listen to you. Father, uh, speak to us through your word. And help us to not spend times spend time in idle uh, debating about controversies and conspiracy theories, but uh, let us set our hands at the task of learning your word, understanding it, and then faithfully applying it into our lives. And let let our application of our of your word in our lives and the the resulting lifestyle be our testimony in this in this time. Father, I, I just pray that as we seek the truth that you would reveal it to us, reveal yourself to us deeper and deeper as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.